Hello, I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Of all the many different cases of unexplained events, strange creatures, hauntings and more, there are some which sit in your subconscious once you first find out about them and refuse to go away. They fascinate and intrigue, and they never really do leave. You may forget about them for many years, but then, when something triggers them, you can recall them in great detail and remember where you first learned of them. Arguably one of the greatest examples of this, certainly for me, and I know for many others, comes in the form of Jeff, the talking mongoose, from the 1930s. The case of Jeff is viewed in many different ways. Some see it as a pure hoax, but others believe there was more at work. Some call it a poltergeist case, but with the exception of the case of the haunting of John Wesley's vicarage, there are none with many similarities. Others draw parallels with stories of witches' familiars. This year saw the publication of the definitive study on the subject, the result of seven years of meticulous research by the book's author. The book is called Jeff, The Strange Tale of an Extra-Special Talking Mongoose, and on this edition of the Folklore Podcast I'm joined by its author, Christopher Joseph, to look at the case of Jeff from the folklore perspective. This episode was originally recorded for release in September of 2017, But between recording and editing, Chris's book was shortlisted for the Folklore Society's prestigious Catherine Briggs Award for new folklore books. As a member of the Society, I was compelled to postpone release of the episode until after the judging took place, to ensure that there was no perceived bias. I'm delighted to be able to say that the book was voted to win the award, and makes this episode an extra special interview with which to close this season of the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Folklore. The beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hello, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. It's excellent to have you. I, I have to admit, before we start, that uh, my wife would back me up on this. I, I have been wandering around with a little bit of a schoolboy grin since we set this interview up. Um, for me, this is quite an exciting interview. And I'll tell you later on uh, why that is the case. 
but to ah, yeah, it's intriguing, I know. But to start with, you're joining us to talk about a very, very interesting case, uh, which will be familiar to some people possibly and not to others. Um, can we start by just having a bit of a broad overview as to what happened in the case of Jeff the Talking Mongoose? Right, well, um, it, the case began in the autumn of 1931 in uh, a farmhouse in the very rural west of the Isle of Man. And a farming family called the Irvings uh, began to report, uh, well, they began to claim, perhaps I should say, a little animal that appeared to them sometimes outside in the yard and sometimes inside the house. And it seemed to have power of speech, and very rapidly they taught it uh, how to speak, and then within a few weeks it was, so they claimed, singing and telling jokes and indulging in long-drawn-out metaphysical discussions, and they claimed it would kind of roam around the neighbourhood and come back with gossip of a quite a mundane nature, such as um, the local farmer his wife was knitting him a new jumper or another farmer has lost his sheep. It was all on a very kind of day-to-day level. Um, and quite quickly, in the immediate neighbourhood, word began to spread uh, and various neighbours, people would go up there. Uh, and quite a few people claimed to have heard this uh, talking mongoose speak. Um, a few people said they'd seen it um, the Irving family all claimed resolutely that they'd seen it, and there are photographs they took which allegedly depict the talking mongoose. So by 1932, this was getting to be a news story on the mainland. Uh, initially, a uh, Manchester newspaper journalist was sent over there, and he wrote quite a sympathetic report. Um, and then people like Harry Price, the psychic investigator, got involved and sent up his researchers. And it carried on, really, for about eight years, from 1931 through to 1939. Now, the case, for me, is very, very interesting. Now, And the reason that I'm so excited about this interview is that this is one case that has stuck with me probably since I was at school. Now, I remember, as a lot of people of my generation probably do, the school library had certain books that were at the beginning of the run in the 001, if you know your library Dewey Decimal System. I, I know you would. Uh, and, so, and so do I. And um, that is where books on the unexplained were shelved. Uh, and among those were things like the Usborne Mysteries of the Unexplained and other other books that are now really iconic, I think, in in this field. Now, there are certain cases that are discussed in those books that are are very well-known cases. Kenneth Arnold and the UFOs, for example, the Brown Lady of Raynham Hall, if you want a ghost photograph, these sorts of cases, they're, they're still very much with us today and still really interesting. But for me, the case of Jeff the Mongoose has resonated somehow and stuck with me over all those number of years. And it's always been a case that 
uh, has just held a fascination for me. And I guess it was the first case that as a child in school, interested in these subjects, I really came across and remembered. How did you come to find the case and what does it mean to you? Well, that year, I think my first exposure was through the Osborne books in the 1970s. It was either that or in the 1980s there was a part work called The Unexplained, which um, ran a very good Jeff the Mongoose story. I have it um, next to me on my shelf. Ah! <laughs> so like you, Mark, I think my first exposure was to Jeff was either through uh, the Osborne books or it may have been the 1980s uh, part work serial The Unexplained. Um, and I kind of, this lay dormant in my mind, I think, until about the year 2000 when I started working at the University of London's Senate House Library. And when you start, you get taken around the different departments and introduced to people. And when I was taken to the archives, the, the then conservatives said, oh, we have um, Harry Price's archives and letters and correspondence, Harry Price, Lordy Rectory, Rudy Schneider, but my favourite is Jeff the Talking Mongoose, and this kind of triggered off a uh, vestigial memory. And then I used to spend my lunch hours and after work going through the um, Price's papers, and there's huge numbers of letters from the farmer, James Irvin, very, very repetitive and obsessive when he's describing Jeff's daily activities and his sayings. Um, when I started to do this, I thought it would be a relatively simple matter to establish once and for all whether this was just an out-and-out hoax or whether it was a poltergeist or you know, collective mental illness. Um, and the more I read uh, these primary sources, the more it seemed to become rather confused and there's various layers of explanation that are just simultaneously happening. Um, so there are certainly elements of quite crude hoaxing. Um, I also suspect there was some kind of collective mental, a kind of folly a plusier amongst the three members of the family that may have encompassed other members of the, um, other people in the neighbourhood, in, in the local area. Um, if you believe in poltergeists, I think there are very great similarities between this case and other poltergeist cases. And the other thing I discovered when I was writing the book was that Jeff bears a very close resemblance in several aspects to house fairies. House fairies, brownies, hobs, um, these rather touchy entities that can be very helpful on a farm and they will look out for um, rats and catch animals and mow the fields but you have to treat them right, and if you don't treat them right, they can be very petulant. Um, and it seemed to me, uh, the Isle of Man, I should say, has its very own type of house fairy, um, and there are stories of this, it's called a finodery, it's a very touchy, hairy little being um, who lives in a farm, and, and again will help out only if he's treated right. And there were stories in the immediate neighbourhood with which the family would have been very familiar. Um, and Mrs Irving Margaret had uh, a Manx ancestry on her mother's side. So there are certainly... There are loads of stories of witches, fairies, ghosts, hobgoblins all around this area 
which was the most rural, I suppose, the, the place where the Manx language had just about survived. Um, sadly, I don't think it has now, but in the 1930s when this was taking place, it was still just about being used. So it's a very traditional um, area. And I think how I see this case is it's a, a collision between very traditional farming ways of life and all the folk ways and the myths that go along with that colliding with modernity because the, the Irving family were actually from Liverpool and they were quite cosmopolitan and sophisticated. The, the father had been quite a successful sales representative for a Canadian piano and organ company and he had, quite a, he had had quite a high standard of living and would travel to Canada um, and then suddenly he's kind of plunged into this Celtic rural lifestyle. So I sometimes Jeff has said to her when his speech is recorded, he uses technological terminology like his magic phones and his rector phone. Um, other times he'll talk about his spirits or he'll talk about goblins. So there's a kind of collision or a, a mixture really between the two. Yes, it's an interesting mix, isn't it, actually? Now, the the case, although it is uh, witnessed or observed or looked into by many people, really centres around this one family in this, this one location. Now, the Irvings, as you say, they lived in Liverpool, um, and then they up sticks and they move from Liverpool um, to the Isle of Man, um, and they live in a very, very remote farmhouse at Dawlish Cashen or Cashen's Gap um, and this really is a hugely isolated place isn't it uh, I know the, the farmhouse doesn't exist anymore but um, they really had a long way to go before they hit civilization or anything else. That's right and, and although the, the building itself has been was demolished in the 70s you can still go and see the site and it's about two miles away from the nearest village Dorby um, but not an easy two miles. There, there was one footpath that hardly, hardly existed, which would, when I was there, certainly would very rapidly become just a marsh and knee-deep in, in mud. The other path uh, down to another village called Glen May was a very steep, rocky path, which in wet weather would actually become a stream. Um, there's, it wasn't on a road. It they didn't have any neighbours. And perhaps I should say, um, not only was it remote, it was very very austere in the sense that they, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have um, a telephone or a radio, they, and they would sometimes be cut off for months at a time. If, if there was um, heavy snowfall in, in winter, they would be just cut off and thrown in on themselves in what was actually quite a small, dark farmhouse. Um, Irving had actually panelled the, the stone walls with wooden panelling, ostensibly as a kind of insulating device. But these, this was a very dark, um, stained wood. Uh, so there's, there's two, this is mentioned for two reasons. Firstly, that there was a gap of about four inches be between the stone and the wooden panelling, sufficient for a little animal, arguably, to rush around. It was also suggested that it, the whole house would act as um, 
as a speaker, as an amplifier, in that one could speak in one part of the house and that voice would be amplified in another part. Um, yeah, they lived a very, very um, cut-off and remote lifestyle. They um, didn't have any neighbours. The, the daughter, Vori, who was 12 years old when Jeff started to appear, was reported as seen wandering the hills talking to herself or talking to her dog. Um, she was supposedly fond of animals, um, but very lonely, intelligent, interested in technology. Um, it's been observed that her interests, and indeed her father James's interests, are mirrored by those of Jeff. So Jeff seemed to be interested in different languages, as James did. He seemed to be interested in technology. He'd go down to the airport, apparently, to see the planes coming in. So did Vori. Um, I could go on. There are very great similarities between the minds of the three family and, and the, the mind of Jeff. And, and that, I guess, could be interpreted in a number of different ways, couldn't it? They're, they're very isolated. Um, so one argument is they concoct this as a hoax, uh, and yeah. therefore their interests are reflected in that. Another argument might be that being so isolated and so insular is going to lead to some kind of... Um, mental projection possibly or some kind of mental condition that is going to develop within the family perhaps i i've given talks about this uh, various places and one occasion two psychiatrists from an east london psychiatric hospital turned up and they had some very interesting comments about this condition folly a plusieurs where a whole family will develop delusions or go insane effectively. And I pursued some of the um, documented um, examples of this in um, history of psychiatry journals. They, the ones I found were in Ireland, rural Ireland, um, quite bloodthirsty, where, where a member of the family would be killed typically by other members of the family, um, which didn't happen in this case, that there, were no, there was no violence or, or anything like that. Um, it does suggest how a shared belief system can can develop into extreme ways, uh, and it's possible that in the case of the Irvings and Jeff, the extremeness was the Irvings maintaining the absolute truth of what is on the surface an absurd story, uh, but but reinforced by the fact that. 10 or 20 locals would absolutely swear that they'd heard this voice and one or two, as I say, even said they'd seen the little animal running around. Um, so it wasn't just a crazy family, but there are certainly instances of uh, examples of, of them hoaxing. There are. I was thrilled to touch what are supposed to be samples of Jeff's fur. Uh, there's some in Cambridge University Library, um, and when Harry Price investigated this in 1936, 1935, he took some air samples from the Irving sheepdog, Mona, and then he had them analysed and compared by an expert at the Natural History Museum, and sure enough, these were identical. There are also ostensibly footprints, they're supposed to be 
paw prints Jeff made in some plasticine. Um, and one of the odd things about, well, there are many odd things about Jeff, but one of the odd things about his physical appearance, according to the Irvings, was that his two front paws were much bigger than his rear paws. And he said this was so he could steal objects from local farms and he used to bang on these wooden walls to keep them awake and uh, generally carry on be a nuisance. But, you know, there is no animal, especially these kind of weasel, squirrel, polecat type of animal that has such a disparity between the front paws and the back. Um, and the same expert at the Natural History Museum just said this is a crude hoax. Um, arguably the photographs of Jeff, which seem to change in each picture. He seems to be a different thing in each picture. They may well be um, something like rabbit skins, maybe arranged on fences or arranged on edges. So there's no doubt that there is an element of hoaxing, like the Cottingley Fairies, for example. But in my opinion, that doesn't explain the entirety of the case. There's something very obsessive about James Irving's recording Jeff's daily doings, and very mundane they are too, over a period of years. Um, yes, and that's some... an interesting thing in itself, isn't it? Because this case went on for a very long period of years um, without being revealed as a hoax, despite some fairly hefty investigation by a number of people. It, it still ran for, what, seven, eight years that's right, and um, arguably there still isn't a res definitive resolution. Not in the way that um, the Cotton Fairies case, you know, the, the two cousins have admitted that they made those photographs, and that's quite clear cut. The only, I think, discussion there is one of those uh, women said, oh, we had to take those photos of fairies because we were seeing the fairies and no one believed us so we were forced into fake. that's right she kind of then, half half retracted it didn't she on on her deathbed that confession yeah. yeah um the the girl Vori, when she was much older she moved to england and was very reluctant to talk about the jeff case and she wouldn't really talk about it at all there was one journalist for an American magazine called Fate, who was very persistent and managed to track her down. She'd moved to somewhere near Cheltenham in 1970, and he did persuade her to give an interview. And all she would really say is, it was all true. Um, I wish it had never happened. It was a blight on my life. And she describes how she was shunned and, and people would say she was spooky and um, the we think of Jeff as the talking mongoose on the Isle of Man he was known as the Dolby Spook Dolby being the, the nearest village um, and apparently her school um, school colleagues would call her the Dolby Spook and she was generally kind of shunned as being weird and uh, spooky she said it prevented her from getting married it's rather a sad interview um, to say, oh, it's all true, and I wish he'd never appeared to us. Yes, I was. I was going to say actually that of of the whole story, I I think um, Vori's story is tragic in a lot of ways, and very similar in my mind, I think, to um, 
Janet from the Enfield Poltergeist case, Um, Janet Hodgson. She, again, she's one of the main protagonists in the case, but she very rarely gives interviews about it. You certainly can't argue in either case that there's any form of, you know, they're not looking for financial gain from the case. They're not looking for recognition. Janet or or Vori wasn't either. They, They really didn't want an awful lot to do with it. No, they don't seem to have benefited from it. Um, I think the most, the closest one can get to a confession of, of uh, hopes in Rory's interview in 1970 was the way that she said, if Mother and I had had our way, we'd have just kept quiet about this. But Father was kind of obsessed and he just had to tell people about it. And that's the closest really she gets to hinting that it may have been a hoax. I mean, there was a general belief when I was um, researching this and talking to people in the area, it tends to be, because of the the period, it tends to be people's uh, sons or nephews or daughters um, of the actual protagonist. But they said there had been a general opinion in the area at the time that it was a hoax perpetrated by the mother and the daughter to try and get the father to move back to Liverpool. I, I think I can imagine they didn't like living in this cold, lonely, uh, bleak farmhouse, and they would far prefer to be back in the bright lights. Um, all I can say about that is, well, firstly, it didn't succeed because they didn't move back, and secondly, in such a small house, if the mother and the daughter were perpetrating a hoax the father would surely have found out sooner or later. Um, But this carries on for, as I say, eight years, really, 1931 to 1939. And even then, there were some occasional reports of Jeff uh, coming back for a bit and telling a few jokes and going away again. Um, Certainly, the father seems to have been very caught up in it. And it's possible that it initially was a hoax and he... He liked the attention. He liked the fact that people with Rolls Royces were coming up to visit people from all over the world. It may have fed into his ideas of being a cosmopolitan, sophisticated kind of man who, um, something that comes across in his letters and descriptions of himself is is set aside from the the average Manx farmer. He sees himself as a cut above. Um, he, when he first moved to the island, he joined the local Freemasons Lodge, and I think that may have been in part to try and get an in into um, the middle class, uh, uh, not the farmer class, to try and work his way into um, the kind of society he maybe had been established in in Liverpool. I, I guess he didn't intend to end up working on the farm. Initially, he was just... Um, buying and selling property, and I think this is what happened here. He would maybe have an idea of being a gentleman farmer, hands-off, unemployed, as he did initially, just employ a few people to do manual labour. But as times got harder, he found himself doing a lot of that himself. Um, He seems to have been a very frustrated man, starved of intellectual stimulus. He, He was very keen to have people send books and newspapers and journals over there. They were very poor, so anything that he could get free um, in the way of books and magazines and 
the Listener magazine he was quite keen to get hold of. Um, but for all that, for his for their great poverty, he doesn't seem to have benefited financially. And I think he could have done. He was given various offers from uh, national newspapers for um, negatives or photographs that they'd ostensibly taken of Jeff, and he refused. Um, there were a couple of other financial offers that he refused. So, again, like Janet Hodgson, money doesn't seem to have been the impulse behind this. That doesn't seem to have been the consideration. No, indeed. Um, and in fact, the only money that he really gains from the case at all is is essentially board and lodgings for a week from one of the investigators. Yeah, that's right. Nandor Fodor, mm. the um, investigator, stayed there for a week and he paid for his board and his vegetarian food. Yes, I was um, going to say, even, even in that case, I mean, his... You know, his catering requirement was just, uh, I'm a vegetarian, I only eat vegetables boiled for 10 minutes in a sauce when I'm quite cheap to run sort of thing. So Yeah, didn't yeah. even want to hear the rabbits that uh, Jeff was alleged to have caught. Um, someone was certainly catching rabbits, which they'd either cook or they would sell down at the, farm, uh, down at the uh, village. Mm. So the main protagonists in this case, we, we've spoken about a little bit already. So there's James Irving. Um, the the um, patriarchal figure in the household. There's Margaret, his wife, uh, and Voiry, their daughter. Mm. Um, James's role is very much as a kind of um, recorder of the events, and as you say, he develops an obsession with the case. He's he's very much the one that that um, is keeping the interest alive, if you like. Um, now, Margaret and Voiry are uh, interesting characters because their roles in the case kind of change a little bit, don't they, as as the case goes on? Yeah, but one of the frustrating things I've found is that we hear very little from them. Um, James Irving was very much head of the household. He was born in 1873, and I think the idea of a Victorian dad applies very much to him. And people commented that when they visited the house, he was doing all the talking, and if one of the others, if his wife or daughter, was speaking in a way that he thought was not in the direction that he liked, he would shoot them a look and they would instantly shut up. There's, there's quite a, one of my favourite photos in the book which shows this. They're all sat round a table and, and the two women are looking towards him at the head of the table in an attitude of some fear, I think. Mm. Um, but as a result, we have lots and lots of his testimony and interviews and letters, very little from the other two. Um, so it's all mediated through, or nearly all mediated through James, um, which means we should be a bit suspicious. Yes. Initially, it seems that Rory was very close to Jeff. When she was, well, I suppose 12, 13, 14, she seems to have thought of him as a playmate um, and also a protector because she was sometimes, I say, bullied by the other school children. Um, as she grew older, she seemed to tire of Jeff and she used to speak of him as a nuisance. Uh, and Mrs. Irving, Margaret, became quite preoccupied as to what Jeff's true identity or nature was. And, and, and there are 
several diary entries or letter entries where she's asking Jeff, I think you're um, a human in the form of an animal. I think you've lived on this earth before. Um, and of course, Jeff is very enigmatic and doesn't give a straight answer or gives contradictory as as these entities tend to do. Um, but she was... They all seem to have... The other thing I should say is they, the family's interpretation and understanding of Jeff seems to have been coloured by the newspaper reports and the visitors they were receiving and literature they were receiving. So there was tremendous interest from spiritualists and mediums. And you can see at the start, Irving is giving an interview to a journalist for, I think it was the Manchester paper, where he says nothing that's happened is supernatural. This is all perfectly normal. I'm very sane. He's very keen to emphasise that he and his family are sane. Um, but he seems to think it's quite possible that an animal can talk. Um, and gradually, a year or two later, when they're subjected to the interest of spiritualist visits, letters, and sending them literature, spiritualist literature, they then seem to adopt the line that Jeff is an earthbound spirit. So he, he is a spirit of a person that lived some time ago and he's somehow taken the form of a mongoose or possessed a mongoose. Um, but they're very responsive to the, the stimu outside stimuli. So initially, Jeff wasn't a mongoose. Initially, he was a weasel. Um, and then what happened in um, March 1932, someone, local man, wrote a letter to one of the Isle of Man papers saying, quite rightly, 20 years previously, there'd been a farmer who'd released a dozen mongoose to control the rabbit population, and then could Jeff be a mongoose rather than a weasel? And then thereafter, he became a mongoose. So it's all very responsive to the media, and, and, and that's why I think of it as a media sensation, um, perhaps something that amused and distracted from the rather grim times of the Depression, uh, rise of fascism, Spanish Civil War, all these things were going on, uh, which Jeff never addresses. He never talks about uh, politics, current affairs, um, which I think is something in in Irving's, in the family's favour, because this is just my own view. If I was to invent uh, a bizarre ghost or entity, I would probably give it prophecies of great imports about Franco and Hitler and Mussolini. Jeff never does anything like that. He's just talking about, um, I went down to Peel and I stole an egg. Or, <laughs> um, I luck into the uh, bus depot and I stole a sandwich. So it's very, very mundane. Yes. Um, and, and I mean, the, the, the thing that makes it such a media circus, I suppose, really, is purely the fact that this is a report of a, a talking animal, isn't it? Because uh, t take take away the fact that this is allegedly um, an animal that has learned the power of speech and a, a way of human thinking. It's essentially very, very trivial, isn't it? A lot of it. 
Yes, surprisingly so. Um, I expected there to be more, you know, kind of prophecies, I suppose, or grandiose. Jeff is quite grandiose. He says he's the fifth dimension and he's the eighth wonder of the world. Um, but aside from that, there aren't any, um, there's no real, there are occasionally discussions about what happens after death. I suppose that's the most profound it gets. But Jeff was very reluctant to talk about death and he, um, he seemed to be have quite scared of, there was a book of ghost stories that he told James Irvin to get rid of. He didn't like that. There was one occasion, and again, I have to remind us that all this, or nearly all of this, is mediated through James Irving's own diaries and letters, but Irving describes an occasion when, for a joke, he puts a white sheet over his head, so the, the classic ghost. Um, this is upstairs, and he came down the stairs going, woo-woo. Um, and he says Jeff was terrified, and when he had to take the sheet off and say, it's all right, it's just me, it's a joke. <laughs> and he describes how Jeff was crying with relief. And damn do that again. Um, there's quite a few instances of this. There was um, an abandoned farm about uh, six miles to the south, and, and there, there's various legends attached to this farm. An unbaptized child, and this sort of thing. Um, and Jeff says, Oh, would you go through there at night? I, I wouldn't go there, I mean, it's too scary, which is very odd given that he's an earthbound spirit and yeah. a self ghost in the form of a weasel absolutely um i i'd like to focus a little bit on the folkloric aspects of this case if oh. i may um we've touched already perhaps on one or two things um one thing that you mentioned kind of uh, for people who know my research um and or have read my book on black dog folklore will know that I talk quite a bit within that area about this idea of um, shared memory or shared consciousness or folk memory. Um, yeah. And you've touched on a very similar thing in some respects by, by talking about this kind of collective um, mindset that develops within an isolated family. So that's perhaps one area. Um, and I, I guess there are, there are other areas as well, the, the brownies and hobs uh, and and fairies is obviously a, another one that is, is very folkloric. So, why do you think? I mean, this is a case that many people say is a poltergeist or is some kind of haunting. They, on the Isle of Man, they refer to it as the um, Dolby Spook. Um, but why is this case of particular interest to us as folklorists rather than as paranormal investigators? Do you think? Well, I think in the context of the Isle of Man. Um particularly this region, the, the parish was called Patrick in the southwest, which was so rich, and still is so rich, in folklore. Um, these will have been tales that all the locals will have been familiar with. Uh, Rory will have learnt about these at school. Her mother, through her Manx ancestry, will have learned about these stories. It was very, it was very much alive in the area, and it has occurred to me that the reason why the story took off in the neighbourhood is that people wouldn't think there was anything that unusual about a talking animal 
in a way that maybe has happened in London, it wouldn't gain such traction. Um, so there may have been, and they didn't seem to, the local people and the, the, the news reports in the local, the Manx newspapers initially don't seem to have gone down a line of poltergeists or, or ghosts. It's, they, they, they compare it to the Finodery, which is the, the brownie or the hob, or the, the Bugan, which is a dreadful monster that lived um, just a couple of miles away, actually, by a Glenmay waterfall, but there's also a witch. So I think the whole landscape was alive with these things, and it may have been that there was a pre-established belief that such things are possible and not absurd. Um, having said that, there was also a large number of local people who believed it was a hoax. So that, that, that's, that's in contradiction to it. Um, it's a tricky one. It's, it's um, because we can't go back to the 1930s and, and talk to the people there and, and ask what do you believe? Mm. What are of uh, the witch at Glenmay Waterfall. What about the, the black dog at Peel Castle? Um, these stories are still around. Um, but I do think it was a fertile area for such a story of a talking animal to, to take root. Um, Yes, I, I guess the, the the story has kind of grown up in a landscape of of other folkloric tales, as you say, uh, and and taken root and developed there. And then now, looking back on it, um, we see it within that kind of landscape, and and it it just feels more like a traditional ghost story, and and more like this kind of otherworldly. Um, element of law is attached to it, I suppose. But then I think it's also been skewed by the fact that um, the case was popularised by Harry Price, who wrote uh, The Haunting of Cashin's Gap, his book about the case. Um, he was obviously a very high-profile media personality, and because he was known for exposing fraudulent mediums, seances, poorly rectory and so on, that's kind of coloured it in a way that I don't think it was viewed like that on the Isle of Man. Um, it's tricky. I, I, I was speaking to a lady a couple of months ago from the island, and she said, I, I think I asked her a question about where does Jeff fit in in, in, in this tradition, and she said, oh, no, we didn't think of him as, you know, we have the fairies and the witches and the Bougain and Kabbalishti, and Jeff isn't one of those. Um, so I think that's maybe the hoax side of it, that she, she didn't see him categorised as that. I've also spoken to people who said, yes, he's absolutely a continuation. He's, um, although he doesn't look like... The Fenodery, the brownie, was a very strong, um, I think, actually life-size man with very hairy legs, so kind of like a satyr. In fact, in the, the Manx Bible, uh, it was translated into Manx, when satyrs are, are mentioned, I think in Isaiah, 
they actually used the word finodery in a way that people would understand. This is a big, strong, hairy-legged man. Mm. So Jeff doesn't look like that. He certainly behaved like that. He was attached to a farm, to a farming family. He would help out. So Jeff reportedly would catch rabbits for the family. It was very useful because they were so poor. He would check the outbuildings if there were rats. He would find uh, duck eggs. He would look out for lost sheep. But he was very touchy and irritable. And the other thing with these brownies, you have to feed them. If you don't feed them, they get really annoyed. Um, so he does fit into that category. Um, and they discussed local folklore, apparently Irving and his family and even Jeff, but um, Jeff, as I say, seemed to be quite scared of the idea of ghosts and the uh, really Cushlin farm, which was haunted. He wouldn't go there at night. Um, so it's rather confusing. What, what is he? He sometimes talked about going back to the underworld. When he would leave after talking to them for hours at time at night, um, his kind of signal, meaning he was about to go, would be a cry of vanished, vanished, and then he would disappear. And once they quizzed him, so where do you go when you say vanished? And so though I go back to the underworld. He also talked of hell, um, the land of mists, where he came from, um, which I think is referring to the Conan Doyle, the Challenger story, Land of Mists, hmm. which has a spiritualist element to it. Now, for those for those that um, don't know the full story of Jeff, the case runs, as we say, for, for quite a long period of time. Jeff's um, visits to the farmhouse, um, they vary in frequency, but they, they gradually drop off towards the end of this eight years. Um, eventually, um, the farmhouse is sold. Um, and is taken on by another person. What happens to the case of Jeff in the end? It seems sort of just petered out. There isn't a kind of grand finale. Um, it was thought initially that the, the subsequent owner, who was an ex-army man, um, reported a large polecat-type animal was prowling around um, which he trapped and killed, and this was this appeared in the local paper, um, and it was suggested that this was Jeff that he'd killed, um, but it doesn't really resemble the descriptions. The photographs depict a big two and a half, three foot long animal. It's a polecat. Um, Jeff was reportedly six inches long with a six inch tail and a weasel size. Um, of the various the subsequent tenants, occupants of the farmhouse, some claimed to have heard strange noises and whisperings. Others said, oh, it's all nonsense. There was nothing untoward. Um, by about early 1970, the, the owners demolished the farmhouse. Um, never really sure why. It struck me that when I went there, there were quite a few abandoned buildings here and there. And it would have been quite difficult, I imagine, to to demolish this building because there are, as I say, no access roads. So to get the heavy machinery up there uh, would have been hard. 
I suspect it was done to stop um, curiosity seekers like myself from going up. If the farmhouse isn't there, there's less of a focus um, because it's all on private land. It's on um, this farmer's land. So that may have been a, a motive to destroy um, the, the building. I was disappointed to see there's very little um, in the way of a you know, tourist industry surrounding Jeff. When I went to Dorby or stayed there, I kind of half expected there would be postcards and tea towels and uh, <laughs> memorabilia. In the way that if you go to Loch Ness, I, I understand there's two rival Nessie visitor centres. <laughs> um, there's nothing like that at Dorby. There, the only thing I could see really as a kind of memory of Jeff was um, the Balakalian Inn, which was a hotel pub now sadly closed, had a big in sign, pub sign outside, um, with a picture of Jeff looking very cheerful, holding up a pint. Um, and that was about it. Um, you talked to people, some of them knew what you were talking about, otherwise others didn't know what on earth you were talking about. So he's rather sadly forgotten in the immediate area, where, as I say, in other uh, parts of Britain where there's a legend or folk tale on myth, you know, this is commemorated. Um, Absolutely. And that, oh. that that's really surprising, I think, isn't it, as you say, because um, if you go to, to Suffolk, for example, and go to um, Bungie, which is one of the most famous black dog examples, you can go to the black dog restaurant, you know, the uh, various other things. The weather vane has a black dog on it. Lots and lots of things commemorating it. You know, I mean, King Arthur is a good example for everything from cafes to car parks are named after King Arthur. Um, yeah. But here we are, 80 plus years down the line, from Jeff's first arrival at Dawlish Cashen, um, we're in a position where on the Isle of Man he's not really commemorated, um, but here we all are remembering it, talking about it, um, you and I reminiscing about books from when we were at school and why why we remember this so much. Why do you think that despite what you find or don't find on the Isle of Man, the case has such an enduring appeal for everybody. Well, I was about to ask you that, Mark, because you, you said um, it kind of lingered with you since you read the Osborne book. Yeah. Um, for myself, I, I feel Jeff has a very real personality, which one can detect, we can pick it up from the quotes that are recorded by James Irving. Um, and it's kind of an endearing personality. It's not like the Bell Witch, which threatened to kill people, and I believe people were injured uh, in that place. Jeff was very bombastic and would threaten to kill people's poultry, and he said, I could t kill all of you, but I won't. But he never did anything more malicious than stealing the bus driver sandwiches. <laughs> um, so I think there is that sort of a personality that people respond to in a way that the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or the Black Dogs, I suppose, don't really have a, an individual personality. No. Um, why do you think it, it stayed with you for so long? Do you have an idea of why it's 
I, th- I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there is that personality aspect. Um, and I think one one thing is that the case really is unique. There are lots of examples of black dogs. There are lots of examples of lake monsters. There are lots of examples of Bigfoot and Yowie and, and similar creatures. There is nothing very much similar, arguably, to Jeff. So the case has that unique quality about it. It has this personality aspect. It's it's very um it's very jovial and convivial. I think you remember those things for sure. Um but also I think if you first came across the case um in books when you were at school yeah. then you don't associate so much well, you certainly don't associate with Margaret as uh, a protagonist in the case she's a little bit in the background perhaps um and although he's the head of the household and, and a lot of the case is mediated through james irving you don't associate with that so much i think if you came across the case like we did at school you very much kind of associate with voiry and her interplay with jeff and and maybe that's the kind of thing that sticks with you it's this unique quality that involves somebody of your age as a school child but it's not frightening it's not scary it's just fascinating yes there's a sort of wonderful sense to it um and i guess if we come across it at a similar age to Vary, we can project and think what would it be like if we were in situation and we had this little uh, secret companion that protected us so it's yeah it, it, it does uh, fulfill a similar role to some of the, the great children's fiction I suppose yeah um, and it's like having an imaginary friend in some respects isn't it which of course a lot of children do yeah I did um, I did wonder if, if it could be explained away as um, an imaginary friend. It, it seems from from what I discovered, children's ages when their imaginary friends appear are much younger than Rory being twelve when Jeff first appeared. But but this only adds to the kind of uniqueness of it, I suppose. That it, it doesn't quite fit into any of these categories. Um, I, I must say, I did when I first started reading about it, I did think it was entirely, completely unique. Certainly, as you say, there, there are plenty of Bigfoots and plenty of black dogs and there aren't plenty of talking mongooses. Um, something that both Nandor Fodor and Harry Price observed is that if this case had taken place uh, 300 years prior to 1932, um, the family would have been hanged as witches. And it is striking when one looks at um, witch trial testimony from the early modern period, how many of these accused people, mainly women, are recorded as having witches familiars in the form of um, weasels, ferrets, uh, small animals. Uh, the witch of Wapping, I think, had a squirrel. Um, who invariably have a name of one syllable. So there is possibly a comparison there. I, it doesn't really take us much further because it, it begs the question of what is a witch's familiar, but that's perhaps another 
connection with the past that it seemed a commonplace for witches in the, the stories of witchcraft and the, the, the trials, the allegations, the belief systems that people had, that they would have a little animal, be it a ferret, a mole, or a weasel, or a mouse, to do their bidding, which is kind of what Jeff did. And, and I think Bryce and Fodor were right. I think if this had happened um, in the 17th century, that they seen as outsiders as they were they were not quite trusted by the locals they didn't really get the hang of farming um they spoke differently dressed differently they would have been seen as other they probably would have been in danger of, of being uh, persecuted and tried as witches i'd like to round off uh by just talking for a few minutes um about your book and your field research um your book on this subject called jeff with a big exclamation mark after it um came out fairly recently uh published by strange attractive press i'll put links to all of this in the show notes for this episode so that people can go and track it down i knew quite a lot about this case already but compared to what is in your book i really knew very very little I have to say that it is one of the most engaging books in in this field that I've read for a long time, and it taught me so much. One of the things that it did teach me, and I know has probably taught a lot of other people, is not to pronounce it Geff, which I think a lot of people do and oh. have done for many years. I certainly spent 30-plus years. Jeff. He couldn't really spell, so he wanted it to be G-E-O-double-F, but because he only spelled phonetically, mm. he just would spell it G-E-F. Um, yeah, I think when I first started researching it, I thought it would be much simpler than it turned out to be. Um, and I think, as I say, I, I felt it had been given a kind of Harry Price team, so it was associated with Bawley Rectory and seances and mediums. Um, and that's only part of the story. The, how it was perceived and how the story was constructed on the island itself I found very instructive in that it wasn't quite the same it, he, he was a spook he wasn't a talking mongoose there's more of an ambivalence um, more of an indeterminate aspect to him that he's something that can't be trapped. He, he's lurking behind the wooden panelling or he's behind the hedge. You don't quite see him. Um, you can hear him, but he refuses to appear. Um, he won't describe what he is, even if he's asked pinpoint, you know, are you a earthbound spirit? Are you a mongoose? He won't give a straight answer. He's very evasive. Uh, and I think that adds to to his charm really that he he, um, he maintains his mystery yes certainly um and it does make things very difficult to track down doesn't it in some respects uh, i i think for for people who uh, are aspiring to research and write on a uh, a topic of a folkloric nature they they too could learn a lot from from reading this book tell us a little bit about um 
the field work and research you did i mean obviously we we know about you've spoken about the uh, library documentation the um senate house library and other places that you worked in but you also and this is the most important thing for folklorists i think you know went to the landscape spoke to the people looked at the area how did you go about researching on the island itself um well i was quite fortunate in that i initially i wanted to place an advert in the local papers just appealing for information that they were quite thrilled that someone was writing about this maybe it was a slow news day that, that week so they published an article um when i went there i'd already had some contacts established from that so i met various people spoke to them people would then introduce you to other people and say oh you should talk to there was an old farmer who just about remembered the period he was a young man then um so it was it was that really people were happy to talk about it uh i think there was a sense of ownership that this was something that happened in their little sleepy neighborhood um and there seemed to be some sense of pride that there was someone oh someone from the university of london and they're writing about her. uh so people were quite happy to talk um and as i say in the village a lot of people didn't know what i was talking about but once i had a couple of newspaper articles published then i started to get people contacting me and then you get more and more contacts oh you should try phoning him you should go and see him um so that's how i built up an idea of i suppose a contradictory on the one hand the local people believed it was a hoax the mother and the daughter and on the other hand this was something real that 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 the continuation of of the local folklore um i guess it depends who you speak to and and what their own beliefs are it wasn't there wasn't a distinction between manx people and what they call comeovers people who come over from the mainland there didn't seem to be a uh, different set of views it just depended on on their own take on it i suppose and and what they thought of the family some people seemed to think they were very stuck up and uh, didn't like them others rather took to them and thought they were rather polite and had good manners um and i think that colored people's views as well okay so finally uh i think we we can't finish without looking at this point um here is a case in a very isolated part of an island which is not technologically advanced uh is not cosmopolitan is not any of those things we have a family of three people one used to sell pianos and organs we have his wife and we have his daughter who at the time that this case starts is 12 years old the case runs for 8 years it's investigated by fodor it's investigated by price various other scientists people of high regard there is no definite conclusion even today as to what was going on surely people such as price and fodor can't have been taken in you wouldn't have thought by a family 
in that kind of situation. So, what was going on? Well, Price's tape was one that he said he couldn't publish in his book for fear of being sued by James Irving. He subsequently wrote to one of his correspondents and said he believed it was a hoax, but not one for money. He described it as a psychological hoax, and he seems to believe that the extreme isolation experienced by the family and the great sense of worth that Irving had, that he was an important man, he was a well-travelled, sophisticated man, destined for better things than scrabbling around um, in a failed farm, had led to this collective delusion. Fodor had a different... Fodor was trained in psychoanalysis. He was um, trained in... came from Hungary, so he trained in Vienna, not under Freud himself, but in Ferenczi. So he had the psychoanalytic uh, framework with which to interpret poltergeist cases and uh, vampire cases. And um, Again, he seems to have thought that um, the case was one of Irving's thwarted ambitions. Um, and then he talks about Jeff as a projection of the three Irving family's minds. He doesn't explain how this is done, but he points to the, the, the fact that Jeff's interests are the same as the um, family's interests in um, motor cars, planes, in animals, in different languages. Um, so while Price says it's a hoax, Fodor says it's genuine, but it's a psychological construct, um, which I think is partly true. I myself lean towards poltergeist as explanation for some of the phenomena. Um, I think it's a various overlaid aspects. So there is the thought, there is the obsession. If you believe in such things, there's the folklore. And I, I think it took hold in that part of the Isle of Man because of the the established traditions of fairies and goblins and hobs and brownies and witches that allowed it to take root there. I think the the simple answer is that there's never going to be a simple answer to this case, isn't it? I think there are there are elements that are drawn from all sorts of areas. Um and I think that's what makes it so enduring and so fascinating and I think it will continue to hold that fascination for many years to come. I hope so. I I certainly think Jeff would not want to be pinpointed and categorised. There was a, a South African spiritualist, a lady called Mrs Gamble, who went over to the farm and, and she called out, Jeff, appear, you know, make yourself known. And, and he supposed to have called out, no fear, you'll put me in a bottle. So he doesn't want to be trapped in a bottle. He doesn't want to be categorised. Um, so I hope it won't be in that way. I was always rather nervous while I was writing this book that uh, somewhere in Cheltenham or Liverpool someone would discover Vori's lost diary and it would say it's all a hoax uh, in a kind of cottony fairies. <laughs> uh, fortunately that didn't. I mean I was actually pursuing um, 
her effects after she died and her solicitor. And um, but I was kind of ambivalent about it because I thought, oh God, you know what? What if I do discover this confession? Fortunately, that didn't didn't materialise. No, and I don't think it's as clear cut as, as as somebody finding a confession from anybody in this case. Uh, I would encourage everybody to um, have a good long look at your book and to make up their own minds on the subject. It really, it really will keep everybody both entertained and enthused. I think for a long time. It's been a pleasure, Chris, to talk to you about um, about Jeff uh, and about this case and about your research into it and i'm glad we've had the opportunity to to bring it to a wider audience thank you very much for coming on thank you mark thank you for having me my thanks go to chris for a fascinating discussion on jeff that draws to a close this season of the folklore podcast don't worry we carry right on with season three in january and there are some more great guests and discussions already lined up as well as my own episodes thank you for your continued support especially to the Patreon supporters who are vital for keeping this podcast going and ensuring that we have now reached Season 3. There will be more new developments in the first part of next year, so to keep up to date, do join the Facebook and Twitter feeds and sign up for the free newsletter. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast Art Director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month and so we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the folklore podcast please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on support there are various ways that you can help and they don't all involve giving us money even just leaving a simple review on itunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience so please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gurdy Bird.